Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the author of those books. And this week I'm very happy to say we have James Dawes on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Evil Men. You probably noticed a slight pause in my voice because it must have been a hair-raising affair even to write this book. As James, I think, will explain, it touches on perhaps the most disturbing things one can imagine, and that is atrocities, particularly atrocities committed during wartime. I very much admire James for picking up the project. Uh, It's not something that I think I could probably do, and I don't think most of us could, but uh, reading it is a very enlightening thing in the way Uh, you know, confronting something that is very difficult to confront is enlightening. So, James, let me say thank you for writing the book, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let me begin by asking you to say a few words about yourself. I am an English professor. I'm also the director of the Human Rights Program at McAllister College. These two things are sometimes seen as puzzlingly disconnected to people. (laughs) Um, and they, and they were for me for many years. Uh, my first book was recognizable as standard literary criticism. And the last two books have, have been more, something more like insiders looks, insider looks at what it means to live in the world of human rights and do that sort of work. Um, and so, so when I'm at cocktail parties and people ask about my job and what I do, um, that connection doesn't make sense. But, but for me, it fits together. And in fact, it fits together. Um, by way of a story, there was a single night when it became clear to me that being an English professor and being somebody who wrote stories about the world of human rights were almost one and the same. I was uh, 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 visiting my wife's parents in their home country, uh, which is a place that suffers greatly from human rights violations, and, and my wife's friends are involved in different sorts of human rights organizations and had survived different sorts of um, traumas, let's say. And so it was late at night and we were we were talking in, in this sweltering heat of an apartment and everybody was chain smoking. It was late at night and 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 they were just you know, people were drinking and opening up and telling stories that they hadn't told before. Um and it was one of those environments that began to feel so surreal because the the the, the world they were describing to me was so new and the kind of the intimacy that we were sharing was so unexpected. And suddenly it occurred to me that, well, two things occurred to me. First, that that these were amazing people with amazing stories and someone needed to tell their stories. And second, that the work they were doing as human rights workers, um, whether it was, you know, going to a disaster zone or going to a prison, um, the work they were doing was the work of storytelling. It was the work of putting together narratives to get get access to, to put to disaster zones or to prisons, to get people to care enough to intervene, to get the government to act, to get international organizations or other countries to pay attention. And so it occurred to me then that being a, a literary critic and understanding the interior structure of stories was relevant. And, and so for me, the, world, the worlds of you know, being personally involved by way of my family connections in the world of human rights and being an English professor 
seamlessly joined and, and, and that's sort of where I am today. Mm-hmm. So tell us why you wrote Evil Men. Um, well, so there's, a, there's two answers. One, which will, will make me sound thoughtful and one which will make me sound like a product of accident. Um, the, the, the accidental answer is because I, I had a friend and, and, and I think this is how it tends to work in, in the world of human rights. It's a very small world. Um, of people doing this sort of work and, and most people know each other and, and the projects I've gotten involved in have generally been because their friend has called me. And so I've got a friend, a wonderful photographer based in New York City named Adam Nadell who was, he's doing a large book of photographs and ex- exhibitions about suffering caused by war and he was planning on going to Japan to take images of these men and he, he knew that confessions would be a large part of it so so he he decided it would be good to bring a writer along. Um, and so he, he, he invited me and I came and, and it was it was almost as accidental as being invited to visit a friend on a weekend. It, mm-hmm. it sort of came out of the blue like that. Um, the, the, the way it makes me seem, that's the accidental. The, way, the, the thoughtful answer is that I knew Adam because we had talked and worked a lot before on human rights related issues and about the problems of representing atrocity and the ethical difficulties of thinking about evil and, and, and showing pictures of, of damaged bodies and telling stories of, you know, sometimes uh, horrifying and shocking, but sometimes uh, voyeuristically appealing uh, uh, abuses. And, and, and I've been thinking a lot about the problem of evil, and he, he knew that and, and, and thought this would be a good opportunity. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So uh, let's talk about the, I guess I would call it the research that you did to write the book, because that is an interesting facet of it. A lot of people, um, I won't mention names who are famous, write books uh, like this, but they don't ever actually talk uh, to people who were perpetrators. One of them who did, who I like a lot, and I've read a lot of her work, is a woman named Gita Seredny, I think is her name. Yes. Yes, and she actually did go to the trouble of, of finding people who had uh, perpetrated really horrible crimes and wrote very eloquently about it. I think I've read many of her books. Um, she's astonishing. Yeah, she is astonishing. She's very brave. Uh, and she has a way of actually getting to these people in a way that's really quite remarkable. So um, so tell us about then uh, the trip to Japan and the men that you met. So so the basic setup of the project was uh, we, we, we were going to meet a group of men um, who are part of an organization called the Chukiran. And these are um, veterans, imperial Japanese veterans from the Second Sino-Japanese War in the U.S. We think of this as related to the Second World War. Um, they were soldiers who, who fought in China. And they did the worst things in the world. They, they murdered, they tortured, they raped, they performed medical experiments on you know, kidnapped, unsedated civilians. They, they did unimaginable things, truly horrific, truly horrific things. And then they got caught and then were sent to prison camp in Siberia where they were brutalized for five years. Many died, starvation, the cold, beatings, depression. And then after five years, those that lived were sent to a prison camp in China called Fushun, which was extremely different. And for them, it was, it was the miracle that changed their lives. There's two ways to think about that prison camp. One, if you're, if you're a U.S. citizen, typically you will think of these camps as Chinese brainwashing camps. And there's a way of analyzing what they did there that 
that makes it seem like um, a violation of integrity to be treated that way. If you are um, the men who went there, these soldiers, they think of it as their spiritual rebirth. They entered monsters and they were treated with respect, they were treated well physically, and they were educated. They were educated and taught to see the truth about war and the truth about imperialism. And so they became essentially evangelical pacifists and anti-militarists and anti-nationalists and also communists. Um, so they stayed there five years. They repented of these crimes they had committed and then went back to Japan after, after they were finally released. And when they went to Japan, they spent the rest of their lives essentially in social exile, but not because they had been war criminals who had done horrible things. They were socially marginalized because they confessed to them. Mm -hmm. And there was then, and, and still is frankly in Japan, a strong effort to uh, shade or even outright deny what men like these did um, during the war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we went to meet them and uh, to, you know, in, in, in the words of those who invite us, to take their confessions and tell their story because they were quite quite keen on having having what they see as the fundamental truths of war shared as widely as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, how many of them did you meet? Um, I would say, gosh, about less than 15. Mm -hmm. Less than um, 15. We, we, had planned, we had planned to have more, but um, they're all so old. I mean, they're, they're in their 80s, 90s. Some died by the time we arrived. Mm -hmm. um, met, several have died since we spoke to them. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So there aren't that many that remain. Mm -hmm. And they were soldiers in the Imperial Japanese That's Army. That's right. Is that correct? Of, of yeah. various sorts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, you say they're very old, and they are, in fact, very old. The, the Second Sino-Japanese War, or, it, it, it takes place between 1937 and, and 40, I guess, 45. Uh, yeah, that's right. And there, there's an occupation of no, what is northern China and the, and the setting up of an imperial Japanese regime there in, uh, in, in uh, Manchuria, Manchu Kuo, I think it was called. I don't really remember mm -hmm. this very well, but yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, what, what was – I guess one thing I'm really interested in is what, when you first met them, what did you explain you were doing? <laughs> so they were – I think they were, they were really ready to share. I, I, what was strange about it was I felt very much like I was coming as a potential intruder, that, that I, was, I was coming to ask them incredibly painful questions about what must be the most awful and in some ways private moments of their lives. Um, and when we arrived, I found, um, yes, yes, they were nervous and, and for some it was emotionally incredibly difficult. But they were they were so intent upon sharing their stories, they were so excited is the wrong word, but they had such an energy, a drive to have these stories told to an American writer and shared with the Western audience that when we arrived, um, it was really just a matter of you know, but sort of what you're doing now. I mm -hmm. mean, and that that was what the weird part was. So I'd I'd go into their homes. And we'd, we'd shake hands, we'd share gifts, we'd, we'd meet their grandchildren, we'd meet their children. Uh, we'd, you know, we'd warm up to an interview by, you make jokes and laugh together. And, and, and if you were watching us on a TV screen with the mute button pressed, it would look for all the world like I was a visitor coming to ask them about their grandchildren. Mm -hmm. But instead I was, I was coming to talk to them about how they had killed other people's grandchildren. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the conversations were just bewildering in that sense. Mm-hmm. And so to kind of turn the question around a little bit, what, what did you hope to learn by talking to them? That's actually a very difficult question because, as you point out in the book, there are a lot of things that you were yeah. hoping to learn. Yeah. Um, I, I think – well, there's, there's, there's two answers I can give, one more conceptual and one more personal. The conceptual answer is I wanted to have – I wanted to think more about evil because I think there's, uh, there's a couple of different ways we tend to experience the concept of evil. And, and this has been on people's minds a lot lately after what happened in Boston. It's unfortunately often on people's minds. Um, we, we, many of us are lucky enough to encounter evil only as, as a concept in the news. Um, it's, it's jarring and can be upsetting then and hard to wrap our minds around, but, but it is nonetheless sort of a cognitive event. And, and we struggle with it and we try to come to terms with our understanding of justice, justice in the world. Um, and, that, and that's one level of understanding evil. Another level, and, and what I was hoping to achieve for myself and hoping to be able to share with the reader, is to understand it, for lack of a better word, sort of from the gut, mm-hmm. up close, sort of face-to-face, mm-hmm. um, to get close enough to the people who had done these things and lived these things so that you could begin to see the world through their eyes, and maybe even if you got close enough to begin to see part of yourself in their eyes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a different way of thinking about evil that, that, that maybe complicates it, maybe makes it less, less a term that stops thought and just creates judgment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the conceptual answer. The personal answer uh, is that for people like me who, who, who write about atrocity and write about grave suffering. Um, there's a question we're constantly asking ourselves and asking the people who read books like the sorts of books we write. And, and it's, a, it's a really ethically torturing question. And, and it's essentially, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you attracted to reading about the suffering of others? What makes you want to either gaze upon trauma or make other people gaze upon trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's two different ways of thinking about that. One that's pessimistic and one that's optimistic. And my book is my personal attempt to struggle through it myself. The pessimistic view is, I think, the one most people would immediately latch on to, which is that, you know, most of it, it, it you could, one could argue that many of us in this country have the privilege of boredom. We have the privilege of living lives of banality where we are safe and secure and we don't really have choices that matter. There's nothing particularly grave about our, our daily activities. And while this is, this is in some sense what we all strive to achieve in our lives, it produces something of an existential dread, a sense of purposelessness, a sense that there's something missing. And so we get that sense of purpose, that sense of gravity, or even the sacred, by parasitically attaching ourselves to the trauma of others. You look at the trauma of others, you look at these, these events that seem to transcend history, and the, the meaning, the tragic meaning of them, uh, sort of, you can 
you can grab that feeling for yourself. And it's voyeuristic and it's exploitative and and it's 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 if it's true, it's it's not an attractive truth about us. Um, the there's an optimistic view, in fact, two optimistic views, um, which I think exists simultaneously, even though it contradicts them. And the optimistic view is that um, we, you know, behind the door of a home or an apartment, you don't know what happens. We all experience tragedy. Uh, life is a you know, veil of suffering for everybody, and even if it's the quotidian tragedies of what happens in a family, these things are real and they are painful, and and we are therefore drawn to these emblematic tales of suffering because we are looking for ways to help us come to terms with the own the things we have to bear privately, the things that are secret to us that we struggle with, and and these dramatic examples of grief and trauma are just the most amplified version of what it means to, to confront grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the other optimistic view is to say that um, we're attracted to these things not because we're, we're voyeurs who are parasitically attempting to give ourselves a sense of meaning, but because what it means to be human is to want to be connected, to not want to be alone. That that's sort of the basic drive we all have. Behind almost everything is that basic drive to feel connected to others. And one of the primary ways we as a species connect is through grief. The coming together um, to comfort each other and to be comforted and to affirm community um, through collective sorrow. And so we are drawn to these tales of sorrow because it's 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 the desire for connection, which is not exploitative, but just the kind of essence of what it means to be a person. Mm-hmm. That, that's very insightful, particularly the first point, the pessimistic point. I had never thought of that before. We have the luxury of what is really boredom, and we look for mm-hmm. things to titillate us. Although that, I think that's very true. If you look at what's in the media, it, it tends to be, especially today, things that are not terribly thoughtful, but are kind of exciting in a, in a sort of a natural Way um, I won't be specific, but right, um, right. We, we like things that uh, make our blood run a little bit hot. Yeah, and and, and I think so. So, so in, in a sense, we are a culture that's addicted to shock. And and while there are shocking stories in this book, I I, I really feel like shock is fleeting. Shock is inadequate and in some ways unethical. I, I want there to be more than shock. Mm-hmm. We owe more than shock to people who have suffered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it certainly is a kind of uh, well, let me say it. it's a kind of a base appetite. I think it's the way I would put it. Mm. The, the desire for titillation, especially of the visual sort, uh, it, it doesn't really lead to very much um, other mm. than titillation itself. Um, so that, that's a very interesting point. Let, let me add, before we talk about what you learned and what well, what they said and what you learned, let me ask one other question. Um, and that this is, I, I wouldn't call it critical, but I'm just interested to know as somebody that uh, has also studied narrative and you study narrative, these people... Uh, were very well prepared. They had yes. been doing this for a long time. Yes. And so if you're trying to get to the root of what makes them tick, you have to get through whatever stories they had prepared. Right. And how did you, um, did you attempt to deal with that? Or how did you take that into consideration? Or, you know, because in a sense, what you're doing is you're hearing uh, uh, something that they uh, knew to say a long time ago. At least I think, that's my guess. So. Yeah, so 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 they, they, they had. Uh, I'm not sure "practice" is the right word, but let's use it for lack of a better okay. word. They had practiced telling these stories. I mean, their first experience of practicing it was in prison camp, because confession and writing their confessions 
was a repetitive practice in the re-education camps. In, in some ways, it was the primary goal of the re-education camps to get them to confess and to write their confessions and to make an autobiography of their identity as imperialist war criminals. And so they'd done that for many years in prison camp. And then they came back to Japan. And even though people didn't want to hear their stories, they were relentless in trying to be heard. And while largely scorned or ignored, they could always find somebody uh, to listen. Maybe they'd, maybe to listen with hostility, but nonetheless, people would listen. Um, and so they had told a lot of these stories before. Um, and that was... So that and, and that was a surprise to me. Um, that was a surprise to me, but because the first couple of interviews, the first interview wasn't like that. The first interview was with a man who uh, it, it appeared clearly hadn't talked about his particular crime. His was killing a, a small child, and and it took us an hour to get him to kind of open up about it. And once he did, you could see he was really shaken. I mean, he was torn up talking about it. But, but for some of these people, they very quickly had actual anecdotes, you know, in the shape of an anecdote of things they had done, organized stories. And, and, and I appreciated that because that's their truth. That's their history. But I also felt like I wanted them to be both me and the photographer felt like there was some kind of raw engagement in the moment that we weren't getting if we were getting those stories. Mm -hmm. Um, and we wanted a kind of raw engagement in the moment. And as a photographer, he could easy, easily get that because he works in a different medium and, and, and he's able to do it visually. For me, it was a matter of once or twice trying to shake people up. And if I was a journalist or perhaps a more relentless interviewer, I would have done this more often. But, but I had a, an experience doing that, which was troubling for me. So I tried it once and then stopped. And that was a moment when I was talking to one of these men who was very comfortable telling his stories and, and had them ready as stories. And, and he would start talking and, and, and I could kind of tell he would, he would, not that he was disengaging, but he was going into the narrative mode. And I was hearing something that he, he was very ready to say and had said before. And so I just wanted to shake it up a little bit. I just wanted to hear something, something that wasn't, that maybe he wasn't, didn't know he was about to say. Mm -hmm. And so I asked him if he ever told his mother. We'd been talking about his mother before, and and I knew he had quite. He he, you could tell by his manner every time we brought up his mother that he was. It was very emotional for him to think about her. And, and so I asked this in the middle of our conversation, and it really sort of threw things off. It did, in fact, produce the effect I was looking for, which was that it, it derailed the conversation, and he started saying something I don't think he'd, he'd said before, maybe much, or maybe at all, or certainly hadn't planned on saying. Um, and it was about how she had waited for him to come back from the war so that she could die, and how he'd seen her. And, she was sick and she was missing an eye and, and he came back and, and that moment of meeting was the, this moment almost of, almost of a boy coming home and trying to get his favorite food from her and, and a sense of profound reconnection and even at that moment of profound reconnection his mother had to touch his legs because 
in Japan, they believe if you're a ghost, you don't have legs. And so she was just trying to confirm that he was actually there and was not a ghost. And, and telling that story, he started to cry. And you know, here's this, this man. I mean, he, 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 he was, he'd actually just gotten out of the hospital to talk to us. He's in his 80s, and he's, he's weeping, and he's weeping because I pressed him. Mm-hmm. And I felt awful. And and so I stopped. I stopped doing that. It's it's it it, it 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 seemed wrong to me. And I think you know probably again if I was if I was a proper journalist if I was writing for the New Yorker I would not have stopped. I would have done that more frequently. But mm-hmm. it was too much for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So when you talked to these individuals, did you have a kind of uh, again I don't want to call it a script, but did you ask them directly what did you do, and then did they tell you, or was it a more free flowing conversation? A bit of both. What, one thing that's, I mean, and, and you'll know this as an interviewer, is that um, you often do have to force people to, to tell you things. So, um, and, and this, was the, this, was the, this, is a, this is part that's frankly uncomfortable for me because I, I knew that I wanted to be able to think about the stories and to share these as stories. Um, that I wasn't, I wasn't, intending to write a book of, you know, high political theory and analysis. I wanted it to be something that anybody could read and, and that, that anybody could be touched by. And so people, they begin talking, and often when people tell about their past, and even, even if it's their past crimes, they'll, they'll say, oh, this is the sort of thing we would do. And they'll repeat generalities about the kinds of crimes they would commit. But I had to, the photographer and I, we had to kind of, pin them down and say, no, wait, hang on, stop. We can't see it. Could you just stop for a second? Where were you standing? You know, mm-hmm. Where was the sun? What did it look like? What did it smell like? And, and, and get them to think about it in, in, the, in a very sensuous and detailed way um, and, and, and force them to narrate beyond the generality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this mode of questioning, did, did it cause an emotional reaction in them? I mean, in, in the one case you said that it did. I mean, did they depart from the script at that point? Yeah, so for, so for I think for, for, for those, those, I guess those were the moments when, unlike the more jarring interruption I described earlier, when we got them to engage in the moment in a way that, I mean, I guess it did trouble them and it was more emotional and you could see sometimes they'd become angry and sometimes they would become upset and cry, but it wasn't in this, it wasn't, it wasn't emotions that they were experiencing because I had inflicted it upon them. It was more emotions they were experiencing because they were in some sense re-entering that moment that had become a distant story to them. And, and maybe in that moment was becoming something of a relived experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So I want to ask three questions. Uh, the first of them uh, is why, in terms of explanation, did they say they had done what they did? So, um, I, I, mean, I, I, I probably insufficiently emphasized that the, the reason they're talking now is because um, they want to do good in the world. Mm-hmm. And so they were, they were quite clear about wanting to explain that these sorts of crimes happen anytime countries send boys to war mm-hmm. and and that we you know and they very they were very interested in the fact that I was an American and this was actually you know during the occupation of Iraq shortly after um, the revelations of widespread US torture and they were really 
concern because they believe that those who live still believe and those who who passed away then believed that one of the kind of distressing privileges that U.S. citizens have is that we can send young boys and girls to war and never really think about it, that we have a professional army and there's a, a subset of our population that has to face the returning injuries, but, but mostly we can, we can just euphemize it and not face it. And so they wanted, they wanted the details to be shared because they think that if people knew the details, they'd be much more cautious about starting wars. And so this was their intention. And so they actually had relatively uh, um, sophisticated ways of describing what made them do what they did. Partly, there was always a moment when they would say, I did it because I was under orders. And I think this is true of pretty much any, anyone who's ever confessed to a war crime at some point pressed. They will say, I had to, I was ordered. And the truth of that is unclear. There's always examples of people who resistant aren't executed or aren't punished. And, 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 and what it means as an excuse is complicated. Uh, but the, but the, the general process that, you know, by just going through these interviews, we'd ask about their training, we'd ask about what got them to the first kill, to the second kill, to the third kill. And it was, it was a pretty standard kind of template that eventually I was able to distill from their narrativeness. And I think it's something that, you know, we wouldn't be surprised by. And the first step is you take, again, typically a young boy and you isolate him. Um, isolating him so that he is separated from his normal moral reference points. We all have moral reference points that we use every day to recalibrate ourselves, to make sure we're on track. They can be our parents, our friends, newspapers, anything. Gossip itself is a form of moral referencing just to make sure that the world we see around us is in fact what it, what we think it should be morally. So we're always doing this. We need to do this. If you take a young man and isolate him and take him away from those moral reference points, that's the first step in it, and it's the first step to deconstructing him as a person. And once you've done that, it's actually relatively easy to deconstruct a person, um, any person, but especially a young person. After that, uh, you, you teach him that the world is binary. Everything is binary. Everything is us versus them pure versus impure, safe or in danger, that which is aggressive and that which must be protected. Um, and that in this world of binaries, there are simple solutions and they can be the instruments of these simple solutions. So any of the confusions or complexities that had troubled them before, uh, they don't have to worry about anymore because there's a single clarifying answer and they can bring it about. And then you physically exhaust them. This is also crucial, whether it's versions of sleep deprivation or, or you know, exercise fatigue or, or the kind of mild abuse and beating that occurs in almost any military training. Um, you just physically break them down and that weakens them mentally and furthers the process of turning them into what you want them to be. And then the last step, the last step is the one that, that that is crucial for making war criminals. All those other steps are crucial for, for making people who can kill, but to make people who can not only kill, but who can delight in killing and who can kill, kill kind of elaborately 
um, and with pride and competitively and creatively over time, you need the fourth step. And that is the, the kind of uh, what the scholar James Waller calls escalating commitments or um, the incremental increase. It's always a matter of starting slow and moving from there. The first time you can get someone to physically strike a villager, that'll be shocking. That'll be hard. The second time, not so hard. The first time you can get someone to uh, practice bayonetting by stabbing a corpse, that'll be disruptive and upsetting and they won't eat afterwards. But by the third time, they will mutilate a corpse and it'll feel normal. And each step along the way makes the next step seem easier and maybe even natural. And then eventually this, this incremental stair-stepping process to atrocity can make people do things they would never have imagined. And these men, they still can't believe they did what they did. They still look back upon who they were. And it's like they're looking at strangers that just, they call themselves demons. They don't, they, they can't imagine they did those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's a very sophisticated answer. If that's the answer they gave, that is, that is very sophisticated. Um, and, and it's, it's fascinating actually. Uh, I didn't expect it to be so elaborate, uh, either in your telling or in the book. Um, I, I guess I'm reminded, uh, and, and this is sort of a historical question. I'm reminded of, of books that I have read about, uh, the Holocaust and particularly about, uh, uh, German auxiliaries that were called into service in the Holocaust to shoot civilians. And mm. um, one of the things the Germans were, uh, surprisingly, uh, <laughs> sensitive about, I don't know if that's the right word was the damage that would be done to the troops themselves. And they basically gave them an opportunity to, opt out of uh, these particular what they called actions, um, mm. which were mass slaughters. Um, and, and, they, and, they, and really the, their, their superiors thought a lot about this, and they were very worried about the effect that it would have on the perpetrators themselves and on, on discipline and morale and, and their mental states. Did the Japanese, did they talk any, did they, did they discuss this at all? Um, it, it is fascinating to see that um, in, in the case of Germany, what I can say this as a historical answer. I, from the limited perspective I had, I did not see that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm an English professor. I mean, again, I came to this as a sort of someone personally involved in human rights who's a, an English professor. So um, my view was limited, and, and the perspective is, is is from these men. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get any strong sense of that. In fact, from what I saw, it seemed almost like the opposite that mm-hmm. there were. Everybody had a story of um, the older soldier who was sort of the anchor of the unit they were in, whose basically explicit job was to make sure these these young people learned that they had to do these things and got good at doing them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. And well, that, there was no there was no choice to get out of it. Yeah, that that is interesting, and there may be a kind of major cultural difference there. I, I don't know. It'd be interesting if somebody would investigate that. I I I don't, I don't want to speculate about it, but it's certainly the case that the Germans were concerned with it when they were actually sending people to commit atrocities. Uh, mm. And uh, so it's just interesting. So the second question, the first one was, uh, why did they say they did it? And the second question is, um, what did they say it felt like to do it? So. Whether we were talking about murdering children or, in one case, a a doctor who performed vivisection on on, these captured civilians, um, 
it tended always to involve at first a little bit of shock, um, but then something like pride and uh, not joy, uh, but satisfaction. If they could torture someone to death, but in the process get information they thought was useful, pride, and, and hope that this would lead to an advancement in the ranks. Mm -hmm. If they could manage to perform a vivisection without any hitches, pride that they would look authoritative. Um, the violence against women, which was widespread and appalling, um, uh, there was a kind of, their, their recounting of who they were then was that there was a casual competitiveness about it. How many women they might uh, assault on any given day, how many they might kill on any given day. The, the one thing that was different was children. For each of them, talking about children was different. That always upset them, even now. And, and many would just try not to talk about it. One person I talked to uh, continually def you know, deflected the question, even though I knew he, knew he had done it. I kept having to press before he finally answered. Talking about children was always hard for them, and, and, and hard for them at the time. The men who did appalling things, and, you know, things you can't imagine, would, when shooting children, find themselves stricken. Mm -hmm. That was one striking difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it didn't feel particularly uh, repulsive to them to commit these atrocities? By the end, no, no. I would say, mm -hmm. generally. I mean, for, for, there, there are some, I think, who would argue that they, they struggled throughout or that they were disassociated in various ways. But, yeah. but all of them, at some point, report just finding mm -hmm. it easy. Mm -hmm. This is interesting to me because, again, in the comparative perspective, again, with the Germans during World War II, uh, what one finds is that uh, people that did a lot of this sort of thing very often got drunk to do it. Mm. Uh, mm. and, and alcohol abuse was something, again, that the Germans were very concerned about, that mm -hmm. um, people who were involved in uh, mass gassings and mass shootings would very frequently get liquored up mm -hmm. before they would do it. And uh, in order to not, not feel as much, to anesthetize themselves and then forget afterwards what they had done. Um, yes, yes. Do you see any of that in the, in the report, using drugs or anything like this, alcohol or... They did not talk about that, mm -hmm, I see. and we did not press them to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, um, so the the third question I had, the first one was why did they say they did it, and the second was what did it feel like to do it. And the third question I had is that um, during and afterwards, when they were committing the atrocities, did they ever think to themselves any kind of reflective moment that what they were doing was wrong? Did it ever occur to them in any way that it was was wrong? So. So I'll answer in generalities as they occur to me. Each man, of course, is different. Sure. Um, but the ones, who, the ones who, who come to mind when I think about it, um, it was largely ex excluding, again, incidents involving children, largely no. I mean, the, the answer they would give is that they were fighting for essentially God. The mm -hmm. emperor was, was a god. And, and they were an extension of his will and and the Chinese were an inferior race they'd been trained to think this for since childhood um, and and it took them a long time and and this is part of part of, ties into part of what happened in the re-education camp because the point of the re-education camp 
was to teach them that these things are wrong, that imperialism is wrong, that the emperor is not a god, that, that the races are not you know, inferior or superior to each other. And so um, now when they re-narrate who they were before re-education, the person they described is always someone who didn't know that mm-hmm. until they were re-educated. Mm-hmm. Um, that's tricky. It's tricky because uh, it's possible that they had rather more conflicted views about this before re-education. Uh, but the, the narrative of their life they have now is that the re-education moment in, in Fushan was the moment it became clear to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. I mean, again, this is I find this interesting because I, I haven't studied the Japanese case, but I have studied the German case. And one of the things that you find with uh, Nazi, let's call them Nazi war criminals, is that they really weren't repentant about what they had done. Uh, mm-hmm. Very. This is something that uh, Gita Sereni finds as well. That they're, they're not repentant. What they thought was this was the right thing to do. And more than that, they see a kind of mitigate, mitigated culpability precisely for the reasons that, that these uh, Japanese war criminals mentioned, that they were in a, a kind of total situation that turned morality on its head. Mm. And so it's not just that they were following orders, it's that they were in this bizarre world where wrong was right. And so they're mm. not culpable. Did the, did the Japanese that you... Uh, did did you sense at all when talking to them that they were trying to reduce their culpability? So, their primary their, their primary express goal now is to to be blamed. They they want people to know that they did these things, that these things are real, that the deniers are lying, and that um, and that they were choices. So so they're they're in this sense profoundly repentant, publicly repentant, and, and I, have to, I, I would like to find a word for it. I'm not sure if brave is the right, the right one, but, but brave about it. That, that said, they, there would always be moments when they would contextualize, and they'd contextualize it as a moment in history or a matter of orders, and I think, and I think that's just because it was, both things are true, that, that you know, you can be the subject of larger historical forces and confusing stressful combat situations and and pressure through um, threats and and in some ways act as if you have no control of your choices mm-hmm. but at the same time uh, be an agent and be making choices and making particular decisions about how you obey orders and and so they they are clearly dedicated to taking responsibility but um, I don't think they have a simple view that agency is pure mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. Do they um, do they know anything about war criminals and the way war criminals were treated in the West? Did they know anything about this? About about how yeah, the Nazis. The reason I ask this is that uh, you know even even now, I mean, I just read in the news that a ninety-two-year-old uh, guard at um, Auschwitz or Sobibor is being prosecuted by the Germans. Did they ever wonder why they weren't uh, prosecuted by the Japanese authorities or by somebody? So, I, I, I mean, they 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 were they were in China. They were named war criminals and, and tried and, and imprisoned and then freed by those they had committed crimes against. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, so that's, that's one category of criminal. Um, there's another category of crim- a subcategory, those who, who were involved in the most diabolical medical experiments. And these, these are essentially the Dr. Mengele's, mm-hmm. uh, the, really the exact equivalent of, of Dr. Mengele's, mm-hmm. people who had an industry of 
performing bizarre and horrific experiments on people in order to gain scientific knowledge. They were not prosecuted because the U.S. wanted the information yeah. and gave them immunity in exchange for what they had learned by freezing people to death or mm-hmm. you know, injecting horse urine into their kidneys or whatever it was they did. Um, and so they, that, for that reason, they were not mm-hmm. prosecuted by the U.S. Mm-hmm. Did they feel like they had uh, paid their debt, whatever it was, or they were paying their debt by their kind of uh, confessional activity? I feel like they, they think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they have a strong, incredibly strong sense of responsibility to, to China um, and and to the memory of those they killed. And and I, I think many do feel like, because of their re-education and because they've dedicated the last decade of their lives to trying to apologize and trying to tell the truth of what was done in mm-hmm. China, mm-hmm. that they that they're in some sense at peace with those they hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of them have achieved that feeling. Mm-hmm. So um, we're uh, running against the clock here, but I, I want to turn the conversation in our last few minutes to you as an observer, because much of the book is about how we, uh, as people that have not committed atrocities and probably have never seen them, uh, how we react to and why we react to the presentation of this material. You've already said that you felt that you were uh, kind of intruding on their lives. Um, could you expand a little bit on how you felt when you heard them talking? This is a question I have um, difficulty answering for a couple of reasons. One is because um, uh, it was it was actually it ended, it ended up being difficult in ways that surprised me. I've done a lot of work in in the world of human rights, and I didn't expect this to be different, and it was. Was, and and there were some personal repercussions that were surprising. But whenever I start to talk about that, I start to feel quite awful. And I feel quite awful because I I I think of people who've come to me who who've you know heard me talk about the book or seen a reading or read the book and they'll come to me and they'll say, you know, and they'll begin to talk about how they have experienced secondary traumatization because of some loved one who has gone through abuse or, or some terrible situation and that they have spent their life tied into a relationship with this person, trying to help them through their trauma, sometimes going to therapy with them, and, and, and they'll talk about this process of secondary traumatization and they'll, and they'll talk about it because they, because they want to, these brave and generous people are, are, are coming to give me some comfort because they think I've been through mm-hmm. a secondary traumatization. And my reaction is, 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 is always kind of embarrassment and shame because I've been through nothing mm-hmm. compared to people who've had to live with this. I could get on an airplane and go home to my five-year-old and three-year-old kid and, and it was nothing I had to be responsible for. And, and there are people who, who live every day with very serious secondary traumatization and and so anytime even I even begin to talk about why this might have been a difficult project, it feels uh, almost trifling and narcissistic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. When they were talking and, and explaining their stories, did you feel any kind of natural revulsion to what they said or to them? Did you feel, for example, we just interviewed somebody who uh, wrote a book about revenge, vengeance, payback. Um, and what he says in the book, it's a very natural feeling. It's one that was evolved. And uh, did you feel like... You wanted to kind of reach across the table and kill these guys, to, you know? I mean, like, they, just so horrible what they had done. So the, the strange thing about it was, well, what, what made that feeling complicated 
was how old and feeble they are. Mm -hmm. And so we begin and they'd show me these pictures of themselves from the war years and I could see those young men must have been terrifying. And they had the power of gods then. But the men sitting in front of me were, I mean, they were almost like infants again. They were that old. You know, they needed help. They were, their bodies were shrinking away and and, and they, they just looked like the sweetest old frail men who are dying and are sorry and 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 want to want to say sorry before they die and and that that was the present that was the reality that was most present to me even as they were saying what they did then mm-hmm. so it was very it was it was confusing mm-hmm. it was very confusing mm-hmm. i see so uh let me ask this sort of it's not quite a final question but as people read your book, what do you want them to take away from it? I, if I had to think of one thing, it would be that for me, the the whole experience was an experience of vertigo um, at every level. There were, there, there were so many things that were hard to wrap my mind around, so many experiences that I found very confusing. And, and it had to do with the, the kind of what I might phrase as intimacy with evil, tentative friendship with atrocity perpetrators. And that, that sense of vertigo, it was not, I mean, we were discussing before the kind of fleeting and exploitative nature of shock. It was the opposite of that. That, that vertigo was sort of something that, that put me into a kind of existential doubt that was that, that I'm still trying to, that I know changed me in some way, and I'm still trying to figure that out. And, 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 and writing the book was my attempt to share that experience with the reader, not just to kind of describe it, but to try and make the reader experience it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they will get that out of the book. Yes, I think they will. Um, so this is the final question. Um, this notion, evil, is, uh, as they say in um, political discourse or in, at least in literary criticism contested. There are people who say that it is basically an empty category. Mm. It's something that you call someone you really don't like, mm. uh, who's probably a lot like you. Um, so I guess my question is, do you think personally that these men were evil? And is there a thing evil? Or are there just people that do bad things? On this matter, I, I sort of hold simultaneously in my head two contradictory, contradictory views and they're, and, and they're one's explicit and one's implicit in what you're saying. Um, I, think, I think there's a strong case to be made against using the concept of evil. Uh, it's, it's, it's a way of stopping thinking. It's a way of, a way of dismissing the full humanity of another. It's a way of just uh, amplifying your uh, judgment of another to almost hatred. It shuts down understanding others because it treats them as somehow mystical or beyond the human mm-hmm. and, and, and thereby shuts down efforts to really understand the very common ways we actually do these things and are made into monsters. And so not only is it an empty category in that it's just you know, a way of saying really bad, but it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an unproductive one. It's the one that, that shares the features of evil, let's say, because it's about dismissing the full humanity of the other. And it's a word that's much more likely to drive us to violent retribution than to reconciliation. 
So there's there, there's a way in which this is a concept that serves humanity poorly. On the other hand, there's there's a kind of necessity to the word because I think for people who who have experienced these sorts of events, um, words like bad or wicked or wrong are not right. Those are not the right words to describe what happened. There are things that happen which, which don't simply shock our conscience, but that transcend the normal categories of language that we have. Um, and we need to have a worked out philosophical conception of this if we're going to do justice to the survivors and the dead. Mm-hmm. And so uh, evil needs to be taken seriously as a concept for that reason. And, and, I, and I can feel the very strong pull, the very strong pull of that of that desire mm-hmm. and, and, and the truth of it too. So, so, so I'm, I'm sort of torn between both views. Mm-hmm. I guess in my own mind, the word, it, it does serve a, a purpose in the sense that it, it almost quiets the mind. It is so wonderfully simplifying, mm-hmm. you know, it's, yes. you know, all of the things that you were thinking about before you said the person was evil are all just cast aside. Absolutely. They are evil period, end of story. And you know, just what to do. Uh, and, and in that way, you know, it really is a kind of mental balm for us. You know, we, we don't have to worry about complexity anymore. We have said that person is evil, and we know just what to do. Uh, and, and it is a dangerous thing. But the utility of it, I think, is is pretty evident. And the fact that it's probably not going to go away. Mm. Because, because we need to place people outside the context of humanity for various reasons. I don't, you know, again, I it's just part of kind of human nature, I guess. I, I don't really know. Um so, and I'm reminded of various points at which people have, uh, especially in mainstream political discourse, called other people evil or other countries or things like this. And, and you know, it always, at least in the United States, it always call, it always begins a kind of debate about this. Um, and uh, and unfortunately, I think recently that the the use of the term, especially toward uh, um, Al Qaeda Islamic terrorists, it is um, I don't think we've been terribly thoughtful. That's, that would be what I would say. I'm not saying these are great guys or anything, but um, we definitely put them in a kind of hermetically sealed category, and we didn't really think much about it after that. Mm. Um, and there was strong political pressure to do that. Uh, you know, I, and there were many kind of upsetting things that I felt after 9-11. Um, well, we don't have to talk about that, but there were a lot of, a lot of people behaved in a way that I, I was supposedly extraordinarily thoughtful people. Hmm. That that it really caused me to wonder. Um, but I think the way you described that, the kind of quieting and simplifying and, and almost pacifying effect that the word evil has, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that occurred, I'll just uh, sort of lay my cards on the table, is uh, my I was teaching at a big university back east, and um, it's extraordinarily liberal. And suddenly everybody shows up at meetings with little American flag lapel pins. Hmm. I mean, for me, this was just horribly disturbing. Like, what, what, did they, what were they trying to tell me about themselves with that? I, I, that they were on my side? I mean, I kind of already knew that. At least I, I, I had hoped that was the case. You know, it just was very, it just seemed to me to, again, simplify things in a way that I, I thought that we as sort of academics, we, we were, this is what we were about not doing. We were not supposed to simplify things in this way, mm-hmm. and well, anyway, that's so. That's just my that's just my opinion. Anyway, uh, James, I want to say thank you very much for writing Evil Men. It's a, it's a terrific and very thought provoking book, uh, and I want to take the last couple of minutes to ask you our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? So uh, it's one of two things. My wife is pressuring me very much to write a book about 
puppies or kittens, um, something, <laughs> yeah, something that'll be less, less of a drain on the family emotional reserves. <laughs> um, but uh, but what I what I am working on a bit more seriously is um, uh, I think I, we we do we do a lot of time as academics, as you know, we spend a lot of time showing how things don't work and showing how. Um, systems fail and, and what we thought was right was wrong and that's there's a kind of intellectual pleasure in in being counterintuitive in this way but one project I want to do is sort of the opposite I'm looking I'm talking to friends I have who work in major human rights organizations and trying to find how how the stories they tell and the strategies they use at the level of the sentence and even sort of global campaigns how 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 a narrative can be successful mm-hmm. and what the interior structure of successful narrative is for changing the world. Mm. That sounds like a fascinating project to be sure. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. no, it probably will be. So let me say this. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor in chief of the new books network. And I want to thank everyone for listening to this interview with James Dawes about his book, Evil Men. But I want to say thank you, especially to James himself, for being on the show and taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, James. Thank you again. All right, take care.